This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. I feel spiritually drawn to Lake Powell in that sense. Like I go there and it's just like I'm I'm at peace. It's like a, one of those few places in the world where where I feel that. And that's the reason why I go there so much. And I feel like I can only stay away from it so long. I just feel it's a place that I just feel so drawn to. And it's just like one of those things where it's just like you're cruising down the lake in the early morning or the late evening. And you've got that that beautiful backdrop and you've just got the glass water and the clear thing. And there's just no place in the world that you get to experience something like that. Today's episode is a companion to a recent episode from June titled Glen Canyon is again being submerged under Lake Powell. For that episode, I went on a motorboat and hiking tour around Lake Powell and Glen Canyon to see what the canyon and the reservoir look like after the reservoir has dropped to levels not seen since the 1960s when Powell was first filling. That episode's guest was the Glen Canyon Institute and their executive director, Eric Balkin. Glen Canyon Institute is advocating for a greatly shrunken Lake Powell and a Glen Canyon that is free from the waters of Lake Powell and has a restored and flowing Colorado River. For this new episode today, I wanted to hear from the people who are advocating to keep Lake Powell full of water and who are deeply connected to the motorboat recreation life on Lake Powell. My guests are the Blue Ribbon Coalition and Powell Heads. The Blue Ribbon Coalition is an advocacy organization promoting motorized recreation and access on land and water. Powell Heads is a social media account on Instagram and TikTok expressing the lifestyle of the Lake Powell motorboat culture. Together. They are promoting their plan to keep Lake Powell more full of water to support recreation interest on top of the lake. They have teamed up on a project called The Path to 3588. 3588 is a reference to the elevation above sea level of 3,588 feet, as that is the ideal lake level per their proposal. I do recommend that you listen to both this episode and the companion episode, which is linked in the show notes, because they provide very different perspectives of Lake Powell and Glen Canyon and the Colorado River and how to reach their respective end goals. It does not matter what order you listen to these episodes. From the Blue Ribbon Coalition and from Powell Heads, please welcome Ben Burr and Zach Smoot. Yeah, so my name is Ben Burr. I'm the executive director of the Blue Ribbon Coalition, and we are a national 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we've been engaged in recreation access policy since 1987. And so we work to keep public lands and waters open for recreation to the public. And we've done that on a national level through litigation, lobbying, administrative advocacy, uh, just about everywhere you could imagine in the state where you have especially federal public land managers influencing recreation access to public resources were there. How long have you been with Blue Ribbon? I've been with them since 2019. Uh, I was hired then as the policy director and I became the executive director in middle of 2021. Can you touch briefly on your work with Senator Mike Lee? Yeah, so I worked with Senator Mike Lee's office in Washington, D.C. for about seven years. And I was doing a lot of his digital media and I was also the guy that you, you like senators usually will have like a natural resource staffer, especially if they're in the West and his natural resource staffers would always come consult with me about how things work in Utah and make sure they understand. Cause I just have a lot of connections on the ground throughout the state. My family was, they were in the helicopter business. So we did helicopter logging, firefighting, um, post fire reclamation and salvage work and so we've been working with federal agencies ever since i can 
I was a kid, I'd go color Smoky Bear on the ground of the Forest Service offices while my dad was negotiating timber sales. And where did, did you grow up all around or did you grow up in Utah? Grew up in Utah. Um, I grew up in Utah County, um, Wasatch Front, and then I currently live in southern Utah in New Harmony, which is in between Cedar City and St. George. Mm -hmm. All right. Zach, can you do the same? Can you tell me your name, where you're located? And then tell me about Palheads. And then if you also have another job, if you do something for, I don't know, if Palheads pays you or if you have some other gig that you do, bring it all in. So my name is Zach Smoots. I am the founder of Palheads. I'm also the water sports ambassador for the Blue Ribbon Coalition, and I also do do landscaping as well. I started Palheads in 2017. I've been going to Pal my entire life, and just there wasn't really a page out there that really was able to like collectively share the experiences of my own experiences I wanted to share with people and then other people's experiences as well. So that's why I, I started it. it was just kind of something for for fun at first and then it, it kind of got popular and took off so then i met ben probably not quite two years ago maybe and i i teamed up with blue ribbon coalition for this feel like pal stuff that we've been doing tell me a little bit more about pal heads you know tell tell it to me as if i had no idea what pal heads was okay yeah so it's an Instagram page, TikTok for just basically everything Lake Pal. I post everything from like Lake Pal information to this stuff that we've been doing with Blue Ribbon Coalition to just fun videos, a lot of just like fun recreational videos, people experiencing recreating on Lake Pal. So a lot of people will go, they'll tag me in their videos, I'll repost people's stuff. It, it, it's a lot of that because like, I mean, people enjoy seeing their stuff reposted people enjoy liking to be able to share that experience with other people so i've just become kind of like a one-stop shop for everything lake pal when you started it did you expect it to i mean blossom wouldn't be the right word but just kind of explode into this powerhouse of a of a social media account absolutely not no it was just kind <laughs> of like it, it took me by surprise a little bit and obviously like it's been it, I mean, at first it, it was just kind of something for fun. And then it, just, I mean, I don't know that there was necessarily a point where it just like exploded. It's just been just like slowly, gradually, like I said, I've been at it since 2017. So like six years now. Mm -hmm. And so it's been just, well, I mean, it's a, a ton of work, a ton of time on my phone, a ton of everything else mm -hmm. like that. But I mean, it's something I love, so it's not. It's not really work to me in that sense. Mm -hmm. Today's episode is sponsored by a new sponsor with the River Radius and a newer company in the river world, Wholesome. Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. You start by framing your trip with the number of people, the dates of the trip, and the dietary needs. You can bring your own recipes or you can use one of the 1,000 plus river recipes from the best river outfitters. Wholesome instantaneously creates menus, shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you. This is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized. You can use a monthly or an annual subscription to serve one trip or several trips. This is an excellent tool for river outfitters and can be tailored for the individual. Wholesome provides videos guiding you through the process of how to use their platform. River Radius listeners can join at 20% off. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS, all one word, that is RIVERRADIUS, and use the web link in our show notes to get right to Wholesome. Hey folks, this is Sam. Right now I'm driving a 2023 Nissan Rogue up a river canyon. Here we go, we're going to do some passing. 
This car is really strong and smooth with its transmission. It feels very powerful, very safe, and very steady. Easy to drive, handles great. Has a small footprint in the lane, and yet it really feels like a big car. It's got big windows. I was driving it yesterday with four big guys. It handled the load great. It handled the space of us really well. This is the kind of car you can put your boats on the roof. You can load the back hatch with lots of river gear. The other thing I've noticed about this car is that it has an incredible turning radius. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. Would you tell me about your relationship? And each of you, just take a turn. Tell me about your relationship with Lake Powell. And, and also, if it goes back layers in your family, I'd be curious. Yeah, absolutely. So my Lake Powell relationship starts on my my dad's side. So my grandpa on my dad's side, he started going to Lake Powell um, it, like as soon as it opened up for for like recreation access back in the 60s, 70s. And he just fell in love with it. Like he loved going. My dad said like his favorite thing to do was just go like explore the canyons. Like they would take the boat out and they would explore like all the different canyons and everything for just for days on end. And they would go every single year. Like this was back before houseboats and things like that. They would just go take the boat up. They, they bought an old, um, it was like an army parachute and that's what they would use as a tent (laughs) just because it was so big. They would just set it up on the beach and everybody would just sleep under this army parachute and they'd go spend a week at Pal exploring and water skiing. And this was back before the days of wake surfing and all that stuff. So everybody just water skied, they would explore and do all that kind of thing. And then they eventually got their first houseboat timeshare and it went from the army parachute to the houseboat. And then when I was a kid, I don't really remember going. I know I went like my parents always took me when I was younger, but there was like a time they eventually got got rid of the houseboat and there was about i don't know maybe like a 5 year period where i didn't go when i was younger and then when i was about 7 8 years old my family got another houseboat timeshare and that was my first real memory that i remember actually going as a kid and i just remember when we launched i mean i just immediately fell in love with the place and we've been going every year ever since that so that was back in 2000 2004, I believe. You still go down with your folks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we take a we take a family trip, um, sometimes a couple every year. All right, Ben. What about you? Yeah, so I don't know how far back the layers you want to go. Uh, my pioneer ancestor was John Atlantic Burr, and he was born on a ship that sailed around Cape Horn as a Mormon pioneer coming to utah they sailed around cape horn landed in what was then yerba buena because san francisco hadn't been settled yet yerba buena this was the most previous name for the modern city of san francisco originally this area was inhabited by indigenous people for several thousand years and then by the europeans and most dominantly the spanish beginning in the latter 1700s under mexican governance in the 1800s the area was given the name of yerba buena yerba buena was an abundant herb growing in the area it is properly pronounced Yerba Buena. And regarding Ben's ancestor, I do find mention of a sailboat going from the east coast of the United States to Yerba Buena in 1846 with a few hundred Mormon migrants, and Ben confirmed that this is likely the ship his ancestor was on. In 1847, Yerba Buena officially became known as San Francisco. And then they came east to Utah. And then Brigham Young sent them down to central Utah, and they settled a town called Burville, which is by Kusharam or Fish Lake. 
and then they would do cows and they trailed cows down the burr trail which is up by boulder and eventually ends at bullfrog and they eventually ended up settling more over near moab and monticello so my family has been all over that southeastern country but my more immediate family my dad he started working for my grandpa's helicopter company when he was 18 and i think he owned a boat since he was like 18 and when I was a kid, we would go to Lake Powell from as far back as I can remember. I mean, my birthday is in early May. I remember many times going down there for my birthday. At least once or twice a year, every year growing up, we would go spend a week down on the lake. And then I moved back and lived in D.C. for a while and didn't really get out there much. Now that I'm back, uh, my brothers have boats and they usually we all go out and do a trip once or twice a year still. And so. I would say it's definitely part of the fabric of our family and uh, something we all look forward to and we've been doing it our whole lives. I think water sports have an interesting, and water sports I feel like doesn't really do it. What I'm trying to say is that humans who have relationships with water have a unique culture. I am in the river culture. We have a very unique culture. The surf culture on the oceans, fishing culture, wherever that happens, deep sea, ocean side, rivers, swamps lakes and i think motorboat ski ski boat culture has its own unique culture but then i think also lake powell has a culture i would love it for you guys to describe that lake powell on water motor culture yeah i think lake powell is utah's second biggest organized church <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a, it, it really is kind of a it's special, right? I mean, there's just no, you can go to all other kinds of lakes, but there's nothing like Lake Powell. And in that motorboat culture, I mean, you definitely have this fantastic natural setting. There's just nothing like it. You really, every time you go, it's different. There's so much you can explore and the landscape's so dynamic and interesting. There's just nowhere to like it, probably in the universe. And it's probably why they pick it as like settings for Star Wars movies and stuff. Do you want to know what Star Wars content was filmed at Lake Powell? For The Mandalorian, Season 3, Episode 1, the beginning was filmed at Lake Powell. It looks like only a camera crew was there filming and that the acting happened elsewhere and was digitally inserted into the Lake Powell scene. There is a YouTube link in the show notes for a short scene of The Mandalorian at Lake Powell. And so there's that, but then you get the whole family side of that uh, like zach probably has the same experience i did of his dad teaching him how to water ski or surf or wakeboard or whatever and you go through that whole process and it's a hundred times of you trying to start and you don't get up and they have to go circle around and every kid you just swallow a lot of lake until you figure it out and every everyone has that dad that helps them do it and then you figure it out and you're glad they did but you sure hated it when you were learning it we lived in that time period where we were still allowed to go be on water weenies and stuff. And that's what everybody would do. But I think there must've been enough lawsuits or something because I don't see those anymore. What's, what's a water weenie. It's like those long, like you can sit five people on and they're like a big hot dog that you're like sitting over the top and you have handles that you hold and you'd get two of them behind a boat and you'd have like the water weenie wars where you'd like go and try to take over the other person's. And the boat drivers are trying to get you on and off the wake. And then you'd you'd hunt down the tour boat so you could get some really big waves. You don't see those anymore. It's definitely a lot more of the newer toys like the wakeboards and the surfboard. And that's all still really fun and awesome, too. And then there's all kinds of other users on Lake Powell, the fishing and the 
just the explorers and some of that but we were always there to do the the power sport recreation activities behind the boat along with some camping and exploration was kind of our emphasis yeah so like i said i i feel like the lake pal culture is really like it's super unique there's there's obviously the just like the wake boat wake surf culture like in utah which utah is huge for that like utah has a massive wake boat wake surf just boating culture in in general what is a wake boat wake boat is a motorboat that looks just like any other ski boat Wake boats have the ability with pressure gates to create a surf wave behind the motorboat and then a person or several people can surf with or without a tow rope in the wake surf wave. That is a wake boat. The Lake Powell one's just really different just in the fact that it's just like people in Utah will make huge investments into these boats just for the fact to go to Lake Powell. Like I just remember as a kid just going to school and the thing that everybody was most excited for when it comes to like summer vacation and things as school's about to get out is if you have a boat, like you're, you're stoked to go to Lake Powell. Like if your family like didn't have a boat or whatever, it's just like you were, you're like wanting to get an invite to Powell or something like that. Like everybody wanted to go to Lake Powell. Like that was kind of the thing. And then that's kind of still how it is. It's such like a unique place. It's just, there's so many different people that enjoy it. Like I haven't always been in like the, the wake scene, like my family got their first wake boat, maybe like three, four years ago. And before that, like growing up, going to Lake Powell, I loved to fish. Like I, I fished from sunup to sundown and that was kind of my thing. And then I, like, I just got older and just kind of like my interest changed. I still enjoy that, but I, I really fell in love with, um, wake surfing and just kind of, kind of that, but there's so many different people that enjoy Lake Powell, like I said, from the people that like to go explore the canyons, from the people that like to fish, from the wake surfing, from everything like that. It's just kind of a really cool place to be able to experience all that. And like Ben said, um, it's just like the, obviously like the, I think the thing that makes it most popular obviously is just going there and there's no place like it in the world. Like it's, you go up there, you don't, it's one of the few places these days where you can go and just like experience not having phone service, just being able to connect from reality for a little bit. And I think that's why people enjoy it so much. It's a unique lake in the fact that there's so many different experiences you have from the multi-million dollar houseboats to the person that's just going out on a boat tour, going kayaking or paddleboarding. Like there's just, it's just really unique in that way. You see people from all walks of life at Lake Powell, all different kinds of boats, all, like, but everybody's coming there in their own way. And you really get a good cross-section of American culture there. And one thing I also remember a lot as a kid, a lot of international groups, like the people that come and do the tours or go out to Rainbow Bridge. I mean, I remember a lot of Japanese tourists there in the 80s when their economy was booming. Then in the 90s, it was a lot of Europeans. We would play the license plate game as kids, and you'd try to find license plate from all 50 states. If you went on a Lake Powell trip, you'd win the game once you pulled into the parking lot with the boats. It just, I think it does have a very strong, unique culture around it, and could be the subject of all kinds of anthropological studies or something if somebody were to take that on. So you two, you, you two represent two different groups, Blue, Blue Ribbon Coalition and, and Powell Heads, and you have joined together to work to work to promote the Phil Lake Powell path to 3588 um, policy idea concept, you know, the whole, the whole package. Tell me about this Phil Lake Powell plan, please. 
Yeah. So Zach was the one who really started it. I mean, he had caught our attention that he was out on social media kind of doing this very organic social media campaign during these years as the lake levels dropped that kind of happened in the last two years. And he was getting a lot of attention for it um, at Blue Ribbon Coalition. We were watching this and Blue Ribbon Coalition had been involved in Lake Powell policy in the past. And so we'd had connections on the lake. This was in the early 2000s. We'd been involved in a policy change where they were wanting to completely remove personal watercraft from the lake, the jet skis and the wave runners. And we came back and kind of influenced that. And we made it so that you could still do like the personal watercraft, the jet skis and the wave runners. And now that whole industry is flourishing in about a hundred different directions with these new battery powered devices that are coming online. And so we watched this and I, and we were kind of waiting for like, is there a policy angle to do this? And it kind of coincided that the Bureau of Reclamation released a plan proposal where they were saying, we are going to start analyzing changing I want to say it was the 2007 drought contingency plan and they were soliciting public comment and they were looking for public feedback. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a good entry point for us to go start understanding how is the water management work at Lake Powell. We started diving into that and me and one of my staff members, we decided let's reach out to Powell heads and see if they want to help us publicize this. If we come forward with a plan and so we we did do that. We we reached out to him. Zach was excited to be part of it. Once we started creating some publicity around our initial take on that first comment period that had opened up, some other people came out of the woodwork. And one of those was John Rickenbach. He's a water policy analyst in the state of California. He does consulting work for all kinds of interests that have to deal with water. And he volunteered to help us prepare a plan. The way we looked at it was... The mission of Blue Ribbon Coalition is to advocate for the recreation interests of public lands and waters. And so we said, if we approach this from a stakeholder position of the recreation users of Lake Powell, what would we ask for? And everybody at the time, especially as things, I mean, if you remember the sequence of events, the water went really low. Most of the ramps become unusable. They did an emergency extension of the state line auxiliary ramp at Waweep, the Waweep area. And that was like the only usable ramp for a period of time. And that's when the recreation community kind of woke up and said, if we don't have access to our lake now. And so that's where we started from saying, what are the water levels where the different recreation amenities do become accessible, assuming nothing changes? And that's where we came up with the 3588 level. And so that was kind of a thought experiment is what would have to change with the management of the water to accommodate the recreation interest. And that was sort of the genesis of the plan. And then John went to town on it. And that's the plan that um, you've obviously read through. So you have some questions about it, but uh, that's kind of how it started. And then once we had a pretty solid plan in place, it, that became a pretty strong tool for building an even bigger advocacy movement on top of that. And that is what we did and kind of where we currently are today. I do want to ask you a little bit more about the number you all come up with. You're, so the 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 Phil Lake Powell plan has this this number of 13 and a half million acre feet as your as your estimated inflow into the Colorado Basin system, into Powell. And you're gathering that from the 2016 to 20, 2020 water years. And there's a formula in there. It's outlined in your plan. It caught my attention because it's so different than 
much of the the observed data over the past 40 years of the dam, 60 years of the dam, you know, those numbers, the, the, the Colorado Compact was built on the, the 15 million estimation yeah. and kind of the numbers show it's 12 and a half that really comes in and that we should probably be looking at something less. So your number is so striking. The number 13 and a half to me is just, just it's like a, it doesn't fit the paradigm. Yeah, let me clarify that. I mean, I think our numbers in the ballpark. I mean, I I have seen the number you talk about, like the twelve million or so, is kind of what's really in the system. The fifteen is the is the wishful thinking number that everyone built everything on. So we're in the ballpark of between those, and our plan does assume it, we might not be right. If it comes in less, then we have to start thinking about how do we adjust everything based on what's really in the system. Our like at at its heart. Our plan is to say what's really in the system now. And if you're looking at the five-year rolling averages, then you are you kind of can account for that there's going to be some storage in reservoirs upstream, right, or, or not, based on what's happened. And so it's a way to kind of say, what do we really have? And, and, and that 13 and a half is a baseline assumption, but... If you look at the further pages in the plan, we have all these tables where we say, and that baseline assumption might be wrong. And if it is, here's also what you do at that point. And so I don't think we're rejecting the possibility that the water levels are lower than that. Uh, I think we're trying to account for those in a thoughtful way. And so to be honest, you're probably the first person that's really keyed in on that number as something that raises us eyebrows significantly. And, um, but it's fair. I mean, it's and it highlights the complexity of this issue in general is we are trying to build a really complicated system that serves not just like a critical resource, but the critical resource in the West. And and if the assumptions are wrong, you get yourself into big trouble fast, which is kind of where we are with the Colorado River Compact. And so, I, I mean, I think I would just push back and say, I think we're in the ballpark of where most people have looked at this are. Um, and I think we've we've built a lot of flexibility and adaptability into our model and approach of how we're looking at it. And if that if we needed to change that number, I think you then just switch the correlating numbers down through the plan mm -hmm. and you still have a plan and it might change the outcomes to where parts of it then might become unworkable. But I think that the other thing you have to look at is. You do want to assume that you can make the system work. Um, the deliverability of the water to those who have the water rights. I mean, you want to assume that there is a scenario and 13 and a half million acre feet still probably gets you to where you are contemplating a scenario where everybody's water rights are, are delivered on in some capacity. Today's episode is sponsored by the Denver area Nissan dealers. Right now I'm driving my Nissan Frontier long bed four-door truck with a camper shell. We're on a 6% grade, climbing uphill, three dudes in the truck, bed full of gear, pulling a trailer with three boats stacked, all the gear, and we are just climbing. This Frontier has a nine-speed transmission, super smooth, uphill shifting, real steady climbing, roads are slick, truck's holding great. It's just really comfortable, safe, strong boating truck. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com.
Wholesome is today's sponsor, and Wholesome helps you pack food for your river trips. I really enjoy having rad meals down by the river while traveling through river canyons, but I do not enjoy figuring out the meals before the trip. I get overwhelmed pretty quick with the recipes, the ingredients, the shopping, the not over-shopping. Using Wholesome, you set the number of people, the dates of your trip, and the dietary needs. You can bring your own recipes, or you use one of the 1,000-plus river recipes from the best outfitters. Wholesome instantaneously creates menus, shopping lists, and cooking instructions for you. This is done using their website and a phone app that makes shopping fast and organized. River Radius listeners can join at 20% off. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS, all one word, that is RIVERRADIUS, and use the web link on our show notes to get right to Wholesome. I want to ask about uh, the Phil Lake Powell plan. In in the wording, I see the word environment a couple times. I don't really see it driving towards recognition of environmental needs. I don't see climate change as a concept. I don't see discussions around the the river, the Colorado River between Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Mead and the needs for making sure that that stretch of river is healthy. It has real struggles happening. So the question is, why why are environmental concerns and climate change excluded from the language of this plan? We probably ought to distinguish between the the path to 3588 plan, which was a specific response to a Bureau of Reclamation solicitation for public comment on a very specific plan. The Phil Lake Pal project, I think, is a broader political project within our organization and our partners, meaning Powell heads and others, uh, where we're looking at the broader environmental issues. And so, well, if you're going and looking through the path to 3588 plan and saying, where's all the analysis of the ecological concerns, that wasn't our focus in that plan. It doesn't mean we don't value those, but it wasn't our thought experiment. Uh, Before and leading up to that, I mean, we had, uh, like Blue Ribbon Coalition has probably participated in hundreds of uh, NEPA administrative processes related to forest management, watershed management. So upstream in any of those forests, like the Ashley National Forest, the Gmug National Forest, uh, some of the the Manti LaSalle National Forest, like a lot of these forests have ongoing plans and we are participating in those aggressively and we are paying attention to watershed health and things like that. We're participating in all of the post-wildfire um, salvage and reclamation projects because those impact watersheds. And so to say we're not paying attention to the environmental concerns is probably just because you're not having a full picture of everything we're doing. Um, and we come at that from our own unique angle, and it might not always be the same way of looking at it. That I, I mean, I think there's a lot of of dogmatism in the environmental movement that you have to look at this our certain way or else you're not being environmentally conscious. And I, I reject that. I think these environmental issues are all very complicated, and we need more voices and more ideas and not less. And one that I thought was interesting was the they were asking public feedback on experimental releases this summer for the reach, the Glen Canyon reach, I think is the uh, is the technical term I'm learning is what you guys call that um, because of the, uh, I guess, this the escapees, the smallmouth bass that had somehow escaped into the river below on a very brief level. The reason that became a problem was because the lake levels had gotten so low. And so the bass were up at the level where the penstock drains are, where so the fish could come through. A lake at 3588, that problem doesn't exist anymore. 
And we didn't design the 3588 plan around bass habitat and water preferences, but it's a better plan if you're trying to solve that problem. And so it's not that our plan, it does have environmental impacts baked into it, regardless of how hard you're looking at those. If, and if we needed to evaluate it on those concerns, I think it would still be a strong plan and still create certain environmental outcomes that people are looking for and happy with. But it also keeps a lake in Glen Canyon, which is an environmental impact that a lot of people to this day still are not happy with. And that's probably a group that there might be a lot of other things we can find we agree on, but that's going to be a fundamental disagreement with the groups that just don't want a lake there, period. But that's okay. We It's a free country and we can all go fight for what we want and come up with good reasons to do that. But I, I don't think we're intentionally ignoring environmental issues. You just heard reference made to the high flow experiment. The high flow experiment is a three-day release of additional water from the Glen Canyon Dam into the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. This year, flows were at about 40,000 CFS for three days. This began in 1996 and has happened many times since, working to mimic natural river flows and comes from the Grand Canyon Protection Act, directing action to protect, mitigate adverse impacts, and to improve values of Grand Canyon National Park and of Glen Canyon National Recreation Area and the reasons that they were established. The leading and most important purpose is to move sediment. The Colorado River is a silt-filled river, and the river needs the sediment to be moved on a regular basis. This is important for the health of the river system there, as the river is able to carve away stagnant beaches and relocate the sediment in various places, creating new beaches. This helps replenish soils for better growth of riparian habitat, helps keep the river wide enough to avoid channelizing of the corridor, and to promote the slowing of the current. This is all supportive of a healthy aquatic ecosystem for the creatures who live in and on the water. Another purpose of the high flow experiment in this case, in April of 2023, was to knock the smallmouth bass out of their incubation cycle so they aren't able to procreate as much. Smallmouth bass are a lake-introduced fish that is not native to the Colorado River, and they are hardcore predators on the native fish of the river. So, to support the native fish, the high flow experiment is working to reduce the smallmouth bass populations. And because Lake Powell and Lake Mead are really like bank accounts supporting each other, Lake Powell owed this water to Lake Mead in this year, and it became an easy way to deliver the water and to promote riparian and aquatic health in the river through the Grand Canyon. So I think you guys are talking about the high flow experiment. I think it was in yeah. April. In the, the, the yeah, and it's just kind of an example of of one that I felt like was, we looked at that more from the environmental perspective rather than acre feet of water versus inflows versus whatever you know it's a it was a different question a very narrowly focused project and so but we still analyzed it and we submitted a public comment and we want to have a voice on issues like that so it's not that we're ignoring them we just didn't put them directly into the path the 3588 plan because of what that was and so we see our work around the lake powell and that area the Phil Lake Powell project will look at all those things more broadly as they unfold. I looked up the comments that the Blue Ribbon Coalition submitted about the high flow experiment. There's a link to those comments in the show notes. As Ben said, the comments are focused on the value of keeping the lake at the elevation of 3588 to prevent the smallmouth bass from entering the river, and that by keeping lake levels higher, the inherent outflow temperatures will be enough to suppress smallmouth bass incubation. Blue Ribbon Coalition's comments also speak to the value of invasive species and seem to promote developing an ecosystem where native fish and smallmouth bass coexist. The comments further request a non-high flow experiment option, 
then state that the environmental assessment does not consider the recreational impacts on Lake Powell of the high flow experiment and expresses that recreation use of our natural resources is a right and should be done in a way that does not deplete those assets. Tell me more though about about climate change. Like I said, it's not it's not discussed. What's up with climate change in, in the way in the way Blue Ribbon and Powell Heads approaches this policy and your ideas around what to do with Powell and the Colorado River? So climate change, as you know, I mean it's a very big topic. It's a polarizing topic. I think when you come at this and say, hey, climate change is happening. It's bad. You're causing it. And now this other bad thing's happening because of it. And as a result of that, you need to give me political power to fix it. You lose half the people right out of the gate. If your starting point is to lose half of the people because you came into the topic on something that's one of the most polarizing topics in the political landscape, then you're setting yourselves up to fail. It very likely is having an impact on this. Uh, it, I mean, there are elements of climate change that you, you can measure parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And there is a scientific reality rooted in physics that says this is happening. What kind of cause and effect that's resulting in throughout ecosystems around the planet is all a lot of conjecture that's based on informed modeling and th and and so it but it does create a space where there's a lot of room for misinformation there's a lot of room for political opportunism and there's a lot of room for creating toxicity in your narrative when you're trying to influence people to change their behavior when i looked at this i'm like if i approach this as Here's our, we're planting our flag around this is what we think about climate change. And now here's what we think you should do. It didn't seem productive. Instead, we said, here's this thing you love. Everybody loves Lake Powell. And Lake Powell's at risk if we don't change how the system gets managed. And, it, and the risk could be any number of factors. It could be management decisions. It could be what the weather's deciding to do this given year or the, in 2016 to 2020 or whatever you want to look at. But what we know for sure is that it's not working now. There's risk apparent right now. You, you're The lake's really low. You're, you can't get on the water. And as bad as that might be for your recreation prospects, that's terrible for Phoenix and for Las Vegas and for the Imperial Valley. And there's a big anxiety around all of that. And so the question is, well, if we can build a plan around the thing that you love, will that help you change your behavior if that's part of what needs to happen here? Because it is. We do believe that conservation of water in the West, everybody's going to have to do it. Like we've built the system off of false assumptions that there's more than what we actually have. And and people are, I mean, you see, I mean, I've watched the legislature in Utah pass a decent number of bills aimed at promoting, enforcing, or mandating conservation, creating different incentives in the system. Over the past two years, the Utah state legislature has passed numerous bills promoting water conservation, and there are many others they have not passed or that were greatly reduced in real water conservation grit. Utah is a landscape where grass does not grow unless it is watered, 
And while there are many bills promoting the removal of grass through incentives, there are also many state lobby groups and homeowners associations working to fight off measures to remove lawns. This pushback against the removal of grass lawns is reducing, but is still very present. And there is a growing interest from the citizens of Utah to reduce their lawns and therefore their water use. The governor of Utah is Spencer Cox. Governor Cox has publicly asked Utahns to use less water by ensuring their plumbing doesn't leak, their landscape is water-wise, and that their showers are not long. Additionally, he has invited Utahns to pray collaboratively for rain. He did this in 2021, and most recently in 2023 for a weekend prayer of June 4, 5, and 6. Um, All of the states are doing this if you start looking at them. I mean, Arizona's looking at building desalination plants and expanding their infrastructure. I mean, everybody's starting to have really interesting divergent conversations about what to do about this. As soon as you start bringing in the, all of the toxicity that comes around the climate change narrative, you derail a lot of that. And so it's not that we, that we don't think it's a relevant component to this, but if that's our starting point, it becomes completely less productive for us to try to mobilize people. If I, I, I did cut my water use back. I got my water use report from my water company yesterday and I'm half what I was two years ago because I've taken actions to conserve water just because I can. I had like, and I think that's hopefully what a lot, like we fix this problem. If 40 million people start recognizing the, gravity of the situation and making changes based on the things they care about. And if climate change is the reason why you're doing it, great. If Lake Powell is the reason why you're doing it, great. What What's needed, regardless of what you think about either of those issues, is we do have to find better ways to do more with less. And I think that's a unifying principle that everybody across this basin is starting to share to the extent they're even paying attention to it at all, which is always the biggest problem with trying to get through to the American population. The way I perceive that answer is that, that you like you could be Ben or the collective kind of group that you represent that you don't like the delivery. You don't like the package that the message of climate change information comes in. And because you don't like the packaging, you're kind of ignoring it or maybe ignoring it's too, too strong of a word, but not really listening to it, addressing it. So if it was just the information coming to you that significant modeling, significant meaning numerous research packages of modeling around water in the West demonstrate the future to have less water in the Colorado Basin, even modeling that was happening 20 years ago saying the same thing. And it's, and it's proven to be accurate at this point as we look back modeling looking forward is saying the same thing less water does that like if it's just the information stripped of that packaging that might be toxic or might be uh it just doesn't deliver well if it's just the modeling information does that change the the way you as been you as the group you represent might be could be is willing to digest and use that information to shape out their views and actions with the Colorado River water that's coming through the system? There's clearly a a segment of the American population that is like, I don't even believe in this. I Mm -hmm. think it, and, and to be fair, I think that there's a lot of red flags that come up when somebody 
sells you a narrative of doom and then says, and therefore give me political power and it's power I'm going to use to hurt you that, or to change your way of life and, and hurts kind of like a broadly used word. I'm going to make, I'm going to have, to, you're going to be forced to change who you are, what you're doing or what, how you, what you're consuming or what, and, and you just lose a lot of people. If I turned this movement into a debate about the validity of the climate change narrative, then I everybody just starts spinning in circles again. Like I've read enough about it. Like I read books about all these things. I read the studies. I, I and so I'm not going to go out there and say this is or isn't happening. What I do know is there's less water in this basin, and that could be because of climate change. That's a policy question we have to answer, regardless of what you think about the other things that might be causing it. And and what you would maybe push back and say, well, if climate change is causing it. Shouldn't we just fix the climate change problem and then we get all our water back? That's a whole other podcast episode. And my short answer is, yeah, if we feel like there's a real viable path forward for doing that. Like, I, I feel like the solutions for how do you solve climate change tend to also get very toxic and problematic. And so we tried to steer away from it. I really wanted to focus on, can we actually save Lake Powell? Is there enough water to do that? Are there policy outcomes that would lead to that happening? And I think we, our plan shows the way that could be done. When it's starting to affect things that people love, I feel like they're going to answer a whole lot more positively to change than they would if it's just say, oh, you need to do this because climate change and you're like people are causing this, like people are evil or whatever. Like I'm just using some of the things that I, I've heard people say, not saying that to everybody. I'm just saying that some, might be some of the toxic thing around the environment. But if you say, okay, guys, now like if you don't start conserving water, you're not going to have your lakes to recreate in. That catches people's attention because that's something that people love and that's something that makes sense to them. And they say, okay, and that's where we can start making change. Just for the effects of climate change, I mean, as far as Lake Powell goes, I mean, I, I think that's all the more important to have the dam and have clean energy that the dam produces. And to have, I mean, if we are headed into a more arid period of the climate, to have that extra water stored and to be able to use part of what I do for a living in, in landscape, most of what we do is zero scaping. Like, I mean, up here in the Northern Utah area, there is a ton of people that are starting to go to that zero scape landscape where they're taking out areas of grass in their yard that they don't really use or need such as park strips or, or other things like that. And that's something that I deal with on a daily basis. So I see people are starting to want to conserve water. And I know that's not where I mean, obviously, that's just a portion of the problem. I know that most of our water is consumed through agriculture, but I, I feel like every every little bit of that helps and it just kind of gets the ball rolling in the sense that people are starting to understand how real and realize how important water conservation is. As the conversation around climate change continued with Ben and Zach, Ben talked about innovation and engineering and creative solutions for working through and around the water needs of this modern civilization. This led to talking about desalinization. This method of securing water always seems to come up in the water conversations. Desalinization is the process of taking the ocean salt or other sources of salt out of the salt water, therefore providing water for municipal or agricultural or industrial uses. There are a handful of processes that can reach this end. Regardless of the process, desal takes immense power, which means more coal or natural gas or nuclear 
but those aren't as steady or as powerful as power that comes from the burning of a natural resource. And there is the huge and damaging byproduct of the leftover brine after the process that needs to be dealt with. One article I read stated that for every liter of water produced via desal, another one and a half liters of brine was created. When this brine is just dumped into the ocean, that is very damaging to ocean life, and this is often how the brine is dealt with. In the world, there are between 17,000 and 18,000 desal plants. Most things that I read just suggest that it's more like 18,000. And those 18,000 desalinization plants are creating over 21 billion gallons of water daily. Not all of that water is for municipal use. How does that relate to the amount of water at Lake Powell? 21 billion gallons daily of desal water becomes 7.7 trillion gallons annually. A full Lake Powell holds about 7.9 trillion gallons of water. Today, Lake Powell is almost 40% full and is holding 3.1 trillion gallons of water right now. So from these estimates, it appears that Lake Powell could not be filled to capacity in one year by all of the desalinated water that is created on the planet each year. And a caveat about these numbers, I'm gaining them from several articles and from a desalinization expert group and running various conversions. The source numbers are accurate and are estimates. In the United States, there are somewhere around 400 desal plants located in 35 states. Many are not using ocean water, but other sources of salty water, and many of these are micro-desalinization plants associated with the extraction of natural resources. Texas, Florida, and California by far have the most desal plants. While there are all of the challenges associated with desal, there are solutions being developed and experimented with to bring desal into a feasible and more efficient tool. But that is still to be settled. But there's a lot of innovation happening there. I mean, scarcity in a market does is what drives technological innovation. And I think the innovative farmers, the ones who survive, will be the ones who I think adopt and develop those innovations. Because the climate's okay. Like a warming climate isn't terribly bad for agriculture. It might change where it happens. And the Imperial Valley, to the extent that we bring on board any desalination type solutions into this system, that seems to me to be the lowest hanging fruit. It's like 40 feet elevation above sea level. It's about 100 miles, give or take, to get into the valley from the Sea of Cortez or the Gulf of California on the side of Baja. If you had some desalination capacity there, you could probably offload a lot of that agricultural use with desalinated water and make couple million acre feet available upstream and reallocate those senior water rights to the cities, which is probably a better place for them. But the economics of the basic proposal, I don't see those as a deal breaker. If I had to pay $2,000 a year for water in the West versus I have to move, I'd probably find a way to absorb it. If that's really the cost, I think that's where people have got to be honest about what are the costs of desalination or whatnot. Uh, but I think I call it printing more water. Uh, it's probably something that has to be looked at if we're because our paper water system is built to collapse basically mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, it's so interesting. I, I, you know, like Arizona just made their their new rule around groundwater. You know, when I think about their desal plan, when I go to Phoenix, I'm like, what is this city doing here? It's uh, yeah. it's such a consumer of water. It's you know, it just doesn't work well. But we're not changing Phoenix. We're not taking out Phoenix. We're not like 
like you rip out a lawn we're not ripping out phoenix it's here we have to water it i don't think that the cost prohibitions of desalination are the biggest thing holding it back i think we just as a people have not been forced to go there but i mean australia and israel like we do desalinate on the planet enough water to fill lake pal every year Mm -hmm. and it's a and it's a technology in its infancy um i don't think it's feasible if you also aren't opening the door to modernized forms of nuclear energy or something like that i mean we would have to change how we do a lot of things for that to work but if our generation is going to build the kind of infrastructure that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents built that made it possible to have the modern life we enjoy we're going to have to start asking these questions of we've inherited this phenomenal technological birthright and if we build on top of it we probably can solve a lot of these problems and either move closer and closer and closer in a direction of something that feels more like a post-scarcity type environment with natural resources or we neglect it we fight to the point of that it all collapses and then and then you look like ukraine i mean the i mean the biggest story in the news this week is the military destruction in a wartime of a dam and the consequences of that and the removal of a dam that's where i feel like that story belongs as an act of war i mean you are removing base infrastructure that makes it possible for a civilization to even exist and so I think our the big challenge of our generation is how do we develop a, a 21st century infrastructure that takes our technological birthright and builds on and expands upon it so that we can have a modern standard of living, but that takes into account better some of the considerations that our our ancestors just chose to ignore conveniently. It wasn't convenient for us, but it was convenient for them. Given what they had to work with, we can do better. And that's part of what we're doing here is can we build political coalitions that can be meaningful part in these discussions and i think we're doing an okay job at it when i look at the phil powell plan when i look at the powell head account it it feels like it's a very it feels like it's a very selfishly focused we want to go boating plan and i know zach you posted you did a real short clip of the the ksl interview the other day where that was addressed but I, I want to hear from you guys because I, I, I hear you talking at length about like deeper layers of that, of the purpose of it, uh, of the plan, the, the ways to go about it. And there's a lot to it. But that outside messaging, the way this package gets delivered, I think, expresses this message of we want to go boating. Let's keep how full. Tell me about that. Is that the message? Oh, well, obviously like that, it's what I love to do. I mean, it's, it's like the same thing. You love to run rivers. I like to boat. There's lots of people that, that love to boat. And I think that I've seen firsthand, like I said, in the KSL thing, like it is such like that boating. I mean, they, it's a 400 over $400 million direct benefit just to that page economy. I mean, that doesn't, I mean, we, we, it has an economic multiplier of probably 10 times that. Like the year that Lake Powell was down last year, I have a lot of friends that work in the boating industry that sell boats. That year that the there was that big media push, everybody's saying Lake Powell's dry, you can't get a boat on. He had people calling in from a clear up here in northern Utah saying, we want to sell our boat because the only reason that we have a boat is to go to Lake Powell. And it, it hurts not only those those page, just that direct page economy, but 
when you don't have that recreation, it also hurts. I mean, the economy all around, just the entire like boating industry in Utah, which is massive. I'm, I'm sure it's a billion dollar, multi billion dollar economy up here. And me and Ben went down and talked to the businesses and page. Like we had a lady down there that um, her husband worked at the the Navajo generating station, and when that got taken down, that took away their main source of income. Navajo Generating Station was a major power plant located on the Navajo Nation in northern Arizona, near Page, Arizona, and Lake Powell. This was a coal-fired power plant with three separate generators and smokestacks. This plant was commissioned in 1974 and then decommissioned and permanently closed in 2019, and the three smokestacks were demolished in 2020. There is a link to a video of the demo in the show notes. It's worth watching the video. The loss of this power plant meant a loss of almost 1,000 jobs at the power plant and the associated Cayenta coal mine located about 100 miles away. The majority of the jobs were held by members of the neighboring tribal nations. The closures of the Navajo Generating Station and Cayenta coal mine have additionally meant losses of millions of dollars in revenue for the Hopi Nation and the Navajo Nation. Navajo Generating Station was closed for a combination of reasons, natural gas being a cheaper power source, the need at the coal plant for very expensive upgrades for emissions control, declining popularity of coal, regional impacts to the water table because of water use for operations, and health impacts on neighboring communities. And the other business that they ran was a boat rental place on Lake Powell. And she was almost in tears when she was just talking about what how the media had destroyed their business by saying, oh, Lake Powell is dry. Like they didn't come out and say you can't put a boat on Lake Powell, but that's how it was perceived by a lot of people. And a lot of people canceled their reservations because of that. I mean, the marinas down there took a massive hit. And I mean, that's a lot of just local people that are just trying to put food on the table for their families. So I believe that recreation is a, is a huge part of that. And I also understand the other things are a huge thing too. I'm not saying that recreation is only the only player at the table, but as far as that comes from my account, I mean, my, my account is largely an entertainment account. Like before this, I didn't really dig into a whole lot of those other issues. I mean, it's just the fun stuff that people like to see the boating, the recreation, the things like that. So that's a lot of what I focused on was that because I believe that, I mean, from the surface level, it's just like, yeah, you want to go boating, but it's, it's a whole lot deeper than that. It's the families that that puts food on the table for. It's the, I mean, just the right of people to go recreating the mental health benefits of going out and being in nature of going out and recreating on a boat with your family, the family time that that spends. I mean, it's just a lot more than the, oh, I, I want to be able to go boating, if that makes sense. I hope that answered your question. But I do appreciate that question. Like, thank you for asking that, because that is one that I get a lot. Like, that's a really common question. It's just like, oh, you only you only care about boating. And it's just like, I, I, I do care a lot about boating. It's It's what I love to do. And I believe that I have a right to care about that. But it's a lot deeper than just, oh, I like, I want to go hang out with the boys on the boat, you know? Yeah, it's it's I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, how many accounts on Instagram do I follow, just because they're cool river stuff? And I'm like, I don't care yeah. about policy. I mean, I definitely care about policy in this life, but yeah. when I want to go space out, I'm looking at really fun river stuff. Yeah, and that's something that I've really had to like carefully like balance in the thing. Uh, it's because like people, I feel like there there's a balance between like having that fun account, but then obviously being a force for good in, in those issues as well, those water issues, because it's just like, I, uh, if that's all I talked about, I mean, I wouldn't have the, 
the influence that I have. And as far as since as people, like it's how Ben talked about earlier, it's like people start to care more about these issues when it starts affecting things that they love. And that's where I feel like we've done a good job in, in the sense that it's like PAL is something that a lot of people love. And so they are starting to take more seriously these water issues and stuff that they have stuff that we're having because it's affecting something that they directly like correlate with and they love. So what do you guys think about the Phil Mead first plan? I mean, it's like totally contrary to Phil Lake Powell. What what are your thoughts on the Phil Lake Mead first? And let me add this in that the premise behind the push there is that there's not enough water in the system, the Colorado basin system anymore to fill both to even halfway fill both. So why not why not go ahead and fill Mead and let Glen Canyon come back as in its natural state? What's your thoughts on on that fill Lake Mead first idea? So yeah, I mean just to put it bluntly, like I I think it's wrong. Like we talk to we we're I'm friends with a lot of people down at Lake Mead. Like I I want to see that reservoir thrive too. I want to see every all of them in the system thrive. And a lot of the users down in, in Lake Mead, they love Lake Pout too. I mean, they visit there and and they support our plan. I mean, we talk talking to the marina owner about like we talked to him a little bit about like the Phil Mead first and like what he thought about it. And he's like, dude, I my job would not be possible without Lake Pal. Like he showed us, I mean, his family's been the owner of that marina since um before Lake Pal was built. And he showed me the chart of like the inflows to Lake Mead and what they were before Pal and what they were after they could gauge and control what came into Lake Mead. And he said he was just like, dude, without Lake Pal, I could not operate this marina at the size that it's become because I would be having to adjust my cables, readjust my marina every day. He said having that valve that they could open and close that makes it predictable, he said, makes my job possible. And he said, too, as well as the fact that he he loves it, like he loves to go to Lake Powell. He loves to do those things. And I believe that, I mean, I, I think taking away that um, – that experience that gives people, I, I believe that a lot more people are able to enjoy those cool natural things that are there in Lake Powell because the lake is there. I mean, Rainbow Bridge before the lake, I mean, that was a multiple day hike that you could only make if you were an experienced hiker. I mean, now it's an afternoon boat trip with the family. Anybody can go enjoy all those things that are there with Lake Powell. And I also believe that stuff goes in cycles. I think that there will come a time where we need both reservoirs to be able to hold water. Like I said, no, nobody knows what what's going to happen as far as with the weather and with the thing. And I think last season is a, a, a really good example of that, that anything can happen. And I would add to that, that, I mean, we did go make a serious effort to connect with the Lake Mead recreation community. And that was the consistent thing we heard is that they all do love Lake Powell. And they see those those two reservoirs as a system that work together, which is actually how we also understand the Bureau of Reclamation sees it. And our plan, if you look at the tables of what happens if X, then Y, then Z, one of those factors is always what's also the water level of Lake Mead. And so we see the two lakes as interrelated and part of a, a system and not inter, not separable from each other in that regard. We started from the question of even in a scenario of really low inflows, can we still maintain both reservoirs as viable, even with pretty terrible assumptions playing out? 
And in our plan, we do show that they can both still function. I've read Desert Solitaire. I've read all of Edward Abbey's books. I've read the John Wesley Powell narratives. I like I I I know what was there in Glen Canyon. And I don't doubt for a second that Glen Canyon with the river going through it was also an awesome experience. And I would like I think anybody who learns what that was and has had experience in these deserts, you can say I mean, you read Edward Abbey's chapter about that, and you're like, yeah, that would have been quite the trip. But we're not in that moment where we get to make that decision anymore. They've already built the lake there. And I still think to this day, most of the Glen Canyon National Recreation Area still isn't covered with a lake. There's still a lot of, if you value hiking, if you value camping, if you value exploring on land, a lot of what's there, um, there's still a lot to see. And because it's a reservoir and the lake levels fluctuate so much, that lake's different and your access into the area itself changes as the lake level changes, which is something we've seen in the last years. And so I think a, a significant amount of that area is still accessible by a lot of different forms of recreation. And I don't see if you were to drain Lake Powell and just have it be at the free-flowing Colorado River through there, I don't see that economically the recreation economy that exists there now would be fully replaced. I think there'd be a big trade-off there. And so that's kind of my take on a higher level. I think I'm aware of the history of the Colorado River. I mean, there were supposed to be two more dams in the Grand Canyon, and those got stopped. And that what is what made the Sierra Club into something that was a hiking club into a national advocacy organization. And the Glen Canyon Dam is the one that they say they missed. They got away from them and kind of also inspired a lot of that. So there's a lot of history there. And since then, there has been an orchestrated political movement to remove that dam. And I don't I don't know. I think it's kind of the political motives are just a little bare there for me of what they really want to accomplish. And I don't think removing the dam in general is a good idea. I mean, we have it now. It's providing a lot of benefit in a lot of different ways. What was there would have been awesome. I, I agree. And, but it's, it's not other like generations before us made a different decision to not have that anymore. And, uh, what's still there is awesome. I, like the same experience that Edward Habby had going down that river. I think of millions of people have that same moment at lake powell every year of being in that environment whatever that experience is of being in that environment i think millions and millions of people are still enjoying a variation of that it's obviously not going to be the exact same as if it was on a river i mean you and i i mean you're a river guy we're we're motorboat guys we'll disagree on that but i on the variable difference between what those experiences are but i think the end result of what that experience is i think is probably pretty similar and I just wanted to add something real quick, just about like the, obviously like Edward Abbey, the people that experienced Glen Canyon before like Powell was there. I mean, they, it was like a spiritual experience. And like, I feel like I agree with Ben in the sense that I, I feel that I feel spiritually drawn to Lake Powell in that sense. Like I go there and it's just like, I'm, I'm at peace. It's like a, one of those few places in the world where, where I feel that. And that's the reason why I go there so much. And I feel like I can only 
stay away from it so long. I just feel it's a place that I just feel so drawn to. And it's just like one of those things where it's just like you're cruising down the lake in the early morning or the late evening. And you've got that, that beautiful backdrop and you've just got the glass water and the clear thing. And there's just no place in the, in the world that you get to experience something like that. And I, I, I feel like that's why it's so popular among many people. If I had the choice and the financial means to go anywhere in the entire world, I, I would, I would choose Lake Powell. And like I mentioned earlier in the thing, it was just like, that was the, every single year going to school, it's just like people were stoked to go to Lake Powell, trying to find people to go to Lake Powell with. Like everybody wanted to go to Lake Powell. Well, thank you both. Zach Smoot, Powell Heads, Ben Burr, Blue Ribbon Coalition. I appreciate you guys taking the time and, and the conversation we've had. Yeah, thank you. Perfect. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate you having us on here. You're welcome. You guys have a great day. Thanks, man. You too. Take care. We'll see you. A Lake Powell size thank you goes out to our guests, Ben Burr and Zach Smoot of the Blue Ribbon Coalition and Powell Heads. Today's sponsors are Wholesome and the Denver area Nissan dealers. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS to gain 20% off with Wholesome. There are links for Nissan and Wholesome in the show notes. In today's show notes, you can also find links to info about the Blue Ribbon Coalition, their path to 3588 plan, to Powell Heads and their social accounts, and to other supporting information from this episode. There's also a link for the companion episode to this one titled, Glen Canyon is again being submerged under Lake Powell. Here at the River Radius, our social media expert is Samantha Sice. Today's music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. Lake Powell is Utah's second biggest organized church. It's a lot deeper than just, oh, I want to go hang out with the boys on the boat, you know? Probably why they pick it as like settings for Star Wars movies and stuff. Everybody wanted to go to Lake Powell. You just swallow a lot of lake until you figure it out. It's what I love to do. I like to boat. There's lots of people that love to boat. It's special, right? I mean, there's just nothing like Lake Powell, probably in the universe.